everyone. You're listening to The Future of Food is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abinayan Samwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is Austa Sombichian Clausen. Austa is a freelance journalist and founder of Grotto, a sapphic bar pop-up concept. Grotto has partnered with spots like Ludlow House of Soho House, female-owned beer company Talea, and newly minted 30 Rock hotspot Pebble Bar. Austa and I chat about growing up in a multicultural household, her start as a travel journalist, and how Grotto fits into the history and culture of queer food establishments. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting today's show. Kerrygold is delicious all-natural butter and cheese made with milk from Irish grass-fed cows raised on small, family-run Irish dairy farms. Kerrygold's farming families pass their craft and knowledge from generation to generation. This traditional approach is the reason for the rich taste of Kerrygold. You can enjoy delicious sliced or shredded Kerrygold cheddar cheese available in mild or savory flavors. The shredded cheddar is perfect for those who love making mac and cheese. And now that grilling season is here, the cheddar slices will take any burger or veggie burger up a notch. There's also Kerrygold's classic salted butter in the gold foil. It's perfect for slathering on corn on the cob, always a summer fave. And the unsalted butter in the silver foil is an absolute must if you're turning sweet summer strawberries into strawberry shortcake. Visit KerrygoldUSA.com to find the Kerrygold retailer nearest you and lots of great recipes. And now let's check in with today's guest. Austa, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Can you tell me where you grew up and how food showed up in your life? I grew up in Claremont, California, which is about 40 minutes, depending on traffic, away from the main Los Angeles area. Food showed up in my life in so many different ways. Growing up in a multicultural household, I feel like food was the binder for Mm -hmm. us, especially because I grew up in my grandparents' house for the first six years of my life. They are Thai and Filipino. So every night, cooking together, my parents do not cook, have never cooked. I don't know why, but My grandparents are really the ones who inspired my love of food, and they would cook for us every single night, and that was kind of like how we all communicated and how we showed our love, I guess. And so you grew up with your dad, who's Icelandic, and your mom, Mm -hmm. who's half Thai, half Filipino. What were some of the standout meals that you remember that were on the kitchen table, I guess, mostly from your, your maternal grandparents' side? Some of my favorite dishes that my grandparents would prepare when I was a kid actually really reflect how I cook today, which is less about specific dishes from Thai or Filipino cuisine and more about ingredients. The way that I cook and the way that they cooked was choosing like those Asian ingredients and then just having fun with it. A lot of pork, fish, vinegar, a lot of soy sauce. And one of the things that I would put on absolutely everything and still do to this day is Maggie. Yes. Okay. Yes. Did That's you a, grow up with Maggie? Yes. Well, I guess Maggie in like the in the bottle, right? Yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. Bottle. It looks like Worcestershire sauce, but it tastes different. 
It tastes yeah. like deliciousness. I don't know. It just makes everything better. I guess it's like an umami boost, maybe something like that. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's, it's all about the umami for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. For yeah. me, for any dish, it's all about umami and texture. Like I, I can't have food that's all one texture and I think that's something I loved growing up too was playing around with texture yeah my grandparents always made this one dipping sauce that I would put on everything too that was kind of like vinegar a lot of cilantro garlic soy sauce and it just makes everything taste amazing especially rice pork etc yeah and then on the Icelandic side what what were some of the things that your dad brought out because I know there's big (laughs) fish dairy Oh, yeah. Components of Icelandic cuisine. That's what's kind of so funny is there are these misconceptions about Icelandic cuisine that I still get brought up to me all the time today. And I think any Asian knows that when you grow up, you have to deal with, oh, your food is gross or stinky or whatever. But I actually have dealt with that way more with Icelandic cuisine. No way. Yeah. Well, what are some of the of... three dishes that have been gross or stinky that you've had to defend? <laughs> well, okay. Everyone who goes to Iceland is like, oh, Icelandic cuisine, that's all Hot horse dogs. meat. Oh. And <laughs> Damn. Horse meat and pickled sharks and whatever. And I'm like, listen, guys, that is not Icelandic cuisine. They are just trying to sell that to you to be cheeky okay but that's that's funny (laughs) (laughs) that's how we get the tourists that's how we that's how we hook them you know is with that pickled shark but (laughs) we are not eating that mainly it's lamb when I think of Icelandic cuisine and, and especially with my childhood I always think about Christmas my family's not even religious but we still celebrate Christmas because it's fun a big component of celebration is lamb and hanging meat so that does sound funky. Like hanging meat to dry. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. meat that's hung in a cellar for long periods of time, and it's smoked. So it's super smoky ham. We always serve it with these little round creamy potatoes oh, and sometimes pineapple, which is interesting. Yeah. How did they get pineapple in Iceland? I mean, I, I'm sure there was a way, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's just like what my grandma likes, honestly. There's this one type of bread, too, that I always associate with Christmas because it's eaten on Christmas by basically every Icelandic household. It's called laufabrot, and it's this crispy flat bread that almost looks like a doily. You know how you have those certain flavors that you try one time and then you crave it throughout the year, but it's so close yet so far away, you can't really get it? That's me with laufabrot. Well, maybe there's an Icelandic bakery hidden somewhere in the city. Oh, that is whipping it up. If you ever go to Reykjavik, you've got to let me know because I'll yeah. give you all my bakery recommendations. They have legitimately the best bakeries. That's awesome. And so you head down to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for college. What did you study? And also, how do you think it applies to the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I went to American University in Washington, D.C., and I studied communications and environmental science, and I minored in international relations. My degree factored way more into the beginning of my career because I immediately started working for National Geographic, which was a dream for me. I actually partially chose to go to school in Washington with the dream of interning at Nat Geo, and I never got that internship, but I got the job. One way or another, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it took a little bit longer to manifest, but once it did, it did so in a big way. But I started out in the PR office of 
Nat Geo channel, and then I shimmied my way over to editorial, and I was writing about environmental news and, and all of that kind of stuff, and it was really inspiring. But what was interesting is that was my life goal at the time was to work for Nat Geo, and here I was. It was right out of college, and I feel so blessed to say that now, but I was kind of like, okay, well, I need like a new dream now. And luckily, because I was writing there, I also was talking to a lot of other writers. One of them connected me to a small publication in D.C. called Brightest Young Things, which I wrote for, I think for free. But I got to go in turn to press dinners. And I remember my first press dinner, I had an old fashioned with a piece of meat attached to it. And I was like, Interesting. I was like, this is amazing. I yeah. want to do this. <laughs> so that you think that's what kicked in the food, the obsession with food and food editorial? I mean, I've always been obsessed with food. When I was growing up, my favorite show was Chopped. I was obsessed with the idea of being on Chopped one day. But yeah, yeah. I think that starting to go to these press dinners and examining food from like an, an editorial lens in that way really inspired me. I guess that's why I started moving away from, and I still love to write about sustainability. I still think that there are a lot of intersections to examine in that way between food and culture and the environment, and it's all very intrinsically linked. So I think in that way, it still very much translates to what I do now and, and what I hope to do in the future, but not as directly as it used to, I guess. And so you moved to New York City and you start writing for more lifestyle, home, apartment. Mm -hmm. So I moved here to become the Instagram manager for apartment therapy and yeah. the kitchen. And I learned within a year that social media was not for me <laughs> as a full-time gig. I really missed editorial and I had planned to go full-time freelance. Then I ended up becoming the lead respect writer for Changing America, which is a satellite publication for The Hill, more left-leaning. And I was writing about diversity, inclusion, and accessibility, which was fortunate because then the pandemic happened, which, you know, obviously put a huge halt to travel writing and I guess food writing to an extent, or I guess it really changed yeah, the, the it landscape more, of food writing. more individual-based and publication-based. I feel like a lot of, yeah, we got a lot more range in individuals publishing their thoughts versus like, oh, these were the five or six, like, you know, big publications that we would rely on for, for different takes on food. Yeah, yeah and sure. a lot of those big publications also had a reckoning. One million percent, and perhaps still today, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> What were some of the best articles that you, if you were to look back on, on all the bylines that you had that you enjoyed writing? I think that being a freelancer is the best thing for me because I hate being pigeonholed. I hate writing about the same thing every day. And that, I think, was what was tough for me being on staff anywhere was you get into this flow or this rhythm of writing about the same thing. I encourage anyone who is interested in being a freelancer to try it. It is intimidating, but it's cool that you can pitch a story about anything to anyone at any time. I've had a lot of different stories that don't relate to each other in any way, but excite me nonetheless in all these different kinds of ways. I think one of the stories that I wrote 
that was the most exciting for me actually does have a lot to do with the pandemic. Even though I write about like whiskey and I write about travel and all of these different things, I think one of the things that does intimidate me is really the stories where I have to write about myself or delve into my own story. And it, it can be scary to share intimate details of your life with whomstever is reading it. Yeah. There's a desire for privacy, but also wanting to include a little bit of yourself in your work. But it was for this publication, a smaller print publication called Compound Butter. Oh, that's a great publication. Yeah. Which I also love because my cat's name is Butter. Oh, so, that's so cute. So I was yeah. like really stoked to be able to write for them. It was a whole issue that they had with all queer writers about like their different stories. And mine was about coming out prior to the pandemic, meeting my ex-partner and us living together and cooking together and how that kind of forced me to, in a good way, examine and, and learn so much more about my own queerness and also my Asian heritage mm -hmm. because I was able to finally dust off those cookbooks and and share that with someone and share that with someone yeah, yeah exactly so yeah. that was really meaningful for me when it comes to your travel writing what sort of philosophies or things are you thinking about as you put pieces out into into the world i think really my favorite stories about travel or, or really anything are human centric stories i also love doing itineraries because i love to create itineraries in my own life and it's almost like a love language for me. So it's really fun to be able to create those qualitative itineraries for publications and have those be shared with people. Besides that, I love to shine a spotlight on kind of like what you do, on, <laughs> on amazing people who deserve a spotlight and don't always get them. And, you know, writing for publications that are very male-centric, like I write for Men's Journal a lot. I write for Rob Report. I write for Inside Hook, which all have male-leaning audiences, which is so interesting. I actually have this fantasy of them reading this story that's like, oh, here's how to roll a cigar. Here's how to <laughs> drink whiskey. And From then they yeah. look at my byline and it's just little old me. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. actually this like small brown woman. Yeah. Um, I think it's really fun to write for a male-leaning or male-facing publication, but then be able to spotlight women. One of the most recent stories that I loved working on earlier this year was about Alex Thomas for Men's Journal. She's one of the first and only master distillers of Irish whiskey, and she's the master distiller for Bushmills, which is the oldest licensed distillery in the country. It's been around for over 400 years. Wow. So being able to talk to her and, and tell her story, I think, was really meaningful. And, and I went to Ireland late last year and got to meet her. We drank whiskey on Giant's Causeway. Like, it was it was all just a, a magical experience. Yeah. So I think those are my favorite things about travel writing is going to the place and then finding the angle while I'm there, seeing what's the story, and then be able to put that pen on paper, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question is, what's been your favorite destination to write or report about? And then what's a destination you're hoping to write about later in the future? Okay, so I didn't write about this destination for a publication, but I think my favorite destination I wrote about, and it was just in my newsletter, was Puglia, Italy. 
so magical. Mm-hmm. I think that what made Puglia feel so magical was that it was not just one big city. It was all these tiny little destinations that had their own food culture, that had their own architecture, that had their own crafts that they specialized in. And I especially was obsessed with Matera, one of the oldest cities in the world. And all of their homes are built out of caves. So so gorgeous. That's a must. For and sure. the food culture there, too, is just. I mean, outstanding. Yeah, f- I mean, it's it's southern Italy, right? Well, yeah. especially one of my favorite things to do when I travel in certain European countries is force whomever I'm with to come with me for olive oil tastings. Nice. I yeah. love visiting olive oil farms, manifesting for myself one day an olive oil farm. Yeah. Well, well maybe in Spain, maybe in Greece, maybe in Italy. Who, Who knows? knows? The next destination that I am going to be writing about and I'm really excited about is Indonesia. I'm going there Very in cool. October. Look out for that. Yeah. Are you going to Bali? Java? I'm going to I'm going to Bali. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Super excited. I've been there once before. I love the food. I think nasi goreng is now one of my favorite dishes. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi everybody. This is Carrie Diamond from Radio Cherry Bomb. The new issue of Cherry Bomb's print magazine is now available. You can subscribe via cherrybomb.com and receive Cherry Bomb direct to your door four times a year. Or you can pick up a copy at your favorite bookstore, magazine shop, or culinary store. You can find Cherry Bomb at Book Larder in Seattle, the Petite Shop at the Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine, and for our international friends, we are Ferment in Vienna and Under the Cover in Lisbon. For more stockist locations, head to cherrybomb.com and click on the magazine tab. Thank you in advance for supporting our print magazine. Before we dive into your project, Grotto, I want to touch base a little bit on queer representation in the hospitality world. Mm-hmm. How have you come to experience it in its current state in New York City and then on perhaps a national and especially as a travel writer on a global scale, too? It's interesting. When I was first coming up with the idea for Grotto, weirdly, because I don't know that much about the global representation of queer bars, but it was when my ex and I were in Iceland visiting my family for Pride, Mm. for Reykjavik Pride, and we realized that there was only one gay bar in the entire country. I mean, granted, you know, it's a small country, but... There was only one. It's called Kiki's. It is iconic, small. And it just got us thinking because this is a country that is constantly on the leaderboard for the most LGBTQ-friendly countries, and yet there's only one gay bar. And we were also talking about kind of the landscape of New York sapphic bars. Mm -hmm. Right now there's four with the recent opening of the Bush and Bushwick. But for context, there's also over 30 more male-centric gay bars in New York. Interesting. So four versus maybe 40. When you look at those numbers, I mean, they can't lie. It's pretty ridiculous, especially when you look anywhere outside of New York City. There's maybe one lesbian bar in each city or less. So I think a lot of queer women have to depend upon parties or sporadic events or what have you to yeah. to find their safe space. Mm-hmm. In 1980, there were over 200 lesbian bars in the country. 
Wow. And that number dwindled down to below 20 in 2021. Do you know what was the cause of that decline? I can only speculate on the decline, but I think a lot of it maybe had to do with, I don't know, price. It costs a lot of money to own a bar. And I think also the needs and wants of the queer women community were changing. I think that a lot of the more classic lesbian bars are modeled after, you know, more male-centric gay bars. But that's not necessarily always what women want to be out and doing, especially maybe on a weeknight. We're not going to be going out to the club, not all of us. I think it's so important to have diverse representation of nightlife offerings for the community, which is how Grotto came to be. Well, can you tell us about the name and the concept of Grotto as it exists now? Yeah. So the name of Grotto came about in terms of thinking about really how I want the space to feel. I want it to feel soft, organic, sloping lines. It's actually proven by psychology that when there are no 90-degree angles in a space, your mind is more instantly at ease. And so I think about something like a grotto, like a cave, where you feel enclosed and safe. And obviously, it's also a cheeky reference to the female body. So Dang, that's really cool. What's been really interesting is you started the concept by popping up at existing bars. Mm -hmm. Why did you think that was a smart way to go about that? And then what does a typical light look like at the different pop-ups that you've had? What's funny is originally I really did not want to do pop-ups at all, especially because the name Grotto has so much to do with how I picture the space to feel. Mm -hmm. I was really hesitant to pop up in someone else's space. I wanted the intention to be there from the get-go, and I think Grotto is all about intention. That's how you create a space that feels real for the community is by creating it with intention specifically for them but I unfortunately am not a billionaire yet (laughs) yet more manifesting and it's really expensive to open a place in New York City so I was originally looking at permanent spaces I ran the numbers and I was like you know what I think if I wait this is never going to happen. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs or founders say this, but you just have to start something, even if it's going to be imperfect, even if it might not feel right, or it might not be your complete vision at first, you just have to do it. Because otherwise, fear and schedules and timing get in the way and you don't end up making it happen. Fortunately, I had been talking to a friend of mine who is now leading up communications at Soho House. So she was like, we have this space for you. It was originally supposed to be a space in Dumbo. That didn't pan out. But I ended up chatting with the management at Ludlow House in the Lower East Side of Mm -hmm. Manhattan. And they were interested in the vision that I had, which felt really affirming and exciting. So we took over a really beautiful room in Ludlow House. It had a fireplace and cushy armchairs. Definitely grotto vibes. If you Definitely the grotto vibes. Yeah. And it was separated from the rest of the space with a velvet curtain. So it still felt like a, a good home base for the concept at the time. We were supposed to only be there for two months. 
And I had no idea if people would like it. I didn't know what the demand was going to be, which is also a a great thing about doing pop-ups. You can figure out who your audience is and, and what the interest levels are. And the interest was there. You know, there are a lot of queer women in this city and they love cocktails and they love talking to each other and meeting each other and feeling safe. So we were able to expand to four months. We were there four times a week. So it was like operating a bar pretty much. And were you at capacity for most of those nights? Yeah, we were completely sold out almost every single seating. That's really impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It felt, like I said, really affirming. It felt like, wow, the need is here and people want this. They want a space to connect. And I think something that really set us apart from the get-go was the addition of social seating. The very first seating we ever had, my partner at the time and I walked around the room and we talked to everyone about What do you want to see from Grotto? What are you expecting from a a queer cocktail bar that is specifically for sapphics? And I say sapphics, too, instead of calling Grotto a lesbian bar. Yes. Can you talk about the distinction between lesbian and sapphic? I ended up going down a deep (laughs) Oxford Dictionary rabbit hole, but for our audience. Well, I mean, for me, I'm pansexual. So I don't identify as a lesbian. I identify as a queer woman or a sapphic. The word sapphic directly relates to Sappho, who was a Greek poet on the island of Lesbos, obviously. Yeah, if you've Um, read any Greek mythology, you probably know about that. Yeah. Then you know about Lesbos, which is where we're going to open the bar. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, go for it. Manifesting on the pod, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so when I think about the word sapphic, I just think of it as being more inclusive to all queer women, all women who love other women and want to be with them versus lesbians who that's one part of the community. It's Mm -hmm. one really important part of the Mm -hmm. community. But I really wanted to be intentional with my language of having Grotto be open to all. And how can I, as a pansexual woman, not think about that? And I think that is why it's so important to have different types of founders who are starting these concepts for the community. Because I think that a founder really directly represents or relates to their audience, Mm -hmm. you know, the people who are coming in the door. Yeah. Anyway, so... Walked around the room, was asking people, what are you looking for? What do you want from a queer bar? People were just saying they want to meet other people. They were thirsty for connection. and Pun I, intended. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they were thirsty for cocktails and thirsty for connection. And I don't just mean romantic connection. I think that is one really challenging thing in the community, especially for queer women, is meeting friends. You're at a bar. First of all, there's as we established, only four queer bars for women in all of New York City. You're going, it's loud, you know, you don't have a place to sit, Mm -hmm. you feel awkward going up to someone, and I think that there's always that underlying fear that you coming up to someone, they're going to think it's immediately romantic. Some people just want to make friends. Some people are in relationships, like I was at the time, and still want to make friends more queer friends and build up your queer community, people who you can talk to, 
people you can go to things with, people who you can relate to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's why after the very first seating, we added a drop down to our booking system where you had to say how social you feel like being that night. So maybe you're going on a date and you don't obviously want to be talking to other people. You would say, I'm not interested in meeting someone tonight. Maybe you came with a couple of friends and you guys are semi-open to meeting people. I might put you with another group. I might not. But then there was a lot of people, especially towards the end of the pop-up, and this made me so happy, that came as single bookers just by themselves to this cocktail bar, not knowing who they were going to meet. And they said, I'm looking to meet people tonight. And I would seat them all together. Sometimes we'd have tables of eight women who just met that very night. Yeah. And they would connect and I would come by and they'd be laughing and they would be trading numbers. I've gotten messages of people who are now super good friends because they met at Grotto. Yeah. People who have come back all together as a group mm-hmm. that met at Grotto. Group chats. It's my favorite thing so far yeah. about starting the concept is fostering those connections. It's really beautiful to hear that you're still creating a great outdoor experience, but that also encourages people to really commune and really socialize. Yeah, Um, I mean, it's intimidating to make new friends. And I I think with social seating, it's so great that there's already that built-in layer of consent. You know that everyone who's being sat together has given consent to being spoken to Mm -hmm. and given consent to being social. I think it breaks down that intimidation barrier of not wanting to make others feel uncomfortable and not feeling uncomfortable yourself. And I think now when people come to grotto events, they immediately feel like they can just go up and talk to people, which, even if they are introverts. Yeah. We hosted an upstate retreat recently to kick off Pride Month with a lesbian-owned distillery called Catskill Provisions um, in Calicoon. And it was an entire weekend of 20-plus queer women coming together. We did fly fishing with a female instructor. We drank whiskey. We played flip cup. We had a very high-low experience. It was like a lovely dinner cooked by Christine Lau, who is an amazing queer female chef. Is you know, she based in New York? or She's, she's based in New York. She, okay, she cool. used to be with Kamika. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a great restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just so great to see all of these connections being formed and fostered over an entire weekend, having these experiences together that were really bonding. And several of the women who came on that trip told me that actually they are introverts and they don't even feel comfortable usually going out to bars. Yeah. And it was so special for me and really eye-opening to me that people have started to associate Grotto with being able to foster those connections in a qualitative way. And that's really everything that I wanted to create with Grotto. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really amazing. I had one woman who came up to me during the trip and she said that this was the only time she's ever felt comfortable in such a large group of other women. I was like, Crying in the club crying or in crying the club. in the camp because we're not in the <laughs> crying club. Crying at camp. Yeah. Crying over my flip cup. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get to see more sapphic, lesbian, queer bars in the city that create those spaces for people and allies who want to join in on the fun. 100%. Allies are welcome. We love a good ally. <laughs> Obviously, something I want to talk about is 
when creating any sort of concept, as much as our ideas are really important, the financials are also really, I would say, just as or even more important because you need money to make these businesses mm-hmm. run. When you were thinking about putting this together, how did you think about the financials and what aspects of the financials you really needed to keep things going? The good thing about doing pop-ups is that you can start something with not too much money down. And luckily, being in the spirits industry, I already had a lot of connections in that realm. So I was able to chat with some of the brands like Basil Hayden and Agua Magica and all of these different really amazing supportive spirits brands about donating product. Mm -hmm. So that was how I was able to get product for the beginning pop-ups. And for Soho House and then now more recently, we did a month-long pop-up with Talea, which is the first women-owned and women-operated brewery in Brooklyn. Yeah. Great place. I love that they have super approachable beers. Even if you're not a beer drinker, you'll still love something from Talea. I know. I'm not, but I love their raspberry sour. It's... I, I especially now they have it at Trader Joe's, so you can get it too. Yes. Yeah. Really rad. Yeah. So with Soho House and then with Talea, we did revenue shares. Mm. So that way we're both benefiting. Grotto's taking some home. You know, the company that is hosting us is taking some home. So it's a win-win. And that's also what we are doing now with Pebble Bar. That's huge. Congratulations. Thank you. That's like a big New York City establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I guess with Pebble Bar making money on the tickets and they are making money on on the drinks drinks and the food. But I'm also creating the cocktail menu. Very nice. It's a lot of collaboration. Yeah. Our series that we have this summer is with Pebble Bar and the Rockefeller Center. We're doing this Sapphic Sounds concerts, which is really cool. Fun. Yeah. I think that there's nothing that brings people together quite like music. You know, you go to a show, you're experiencing the magic of this artist and their performance and you're grooving and moving with these random people that you don't know. And then I think it it really brings you together in a certain vibe, you know. Mm -hmm. That's personally why I'm not a big like stadium show person. I like to go to a more intimate venue where I feel like I can actually see the artist with my eyes. <laughs> and I don't want to see them through a screen. Yeah. Maybe they'll make eye contact with me. Who knows? <laughs> and you feel connected with the concert goers, too, which is why I thought it would be so fun to do kind of a, a sapphic version of that. Kind of like an NPR Tiny Desk meets a So Far Sounds meets Gay. Also being able to shine a spotlight on up-and-coming artists that are queer women. Our first show that we just did on Pride Sunday was with Madison Rose, who I met because she came into Ludlow House and was like, what is this that's going on? And I told her about Grotto, and she came in, and she made new friends, and, you know, all good things. And... That night, she shared with me a sapphic song that she had been working on. And then she ended up being booked for this show and debuted the song fully finished at the show, which was a full circle moment. And 
felt like a, a full circle manifestation. Where do you hope to see Grotto in the next five to 10 years? And how are you hoping that Grotto can contribute to the conversation of cities and, and food communities being more supportive of queer establishments? I would love to see Grotto, obviously, as a permanent place mm-hmm. where people can come in. I want it to be almost speakeasy style so that when you walk in the front door, there's going to be almost like a barrier to entry, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's something that I thought of because the Henrietta Hudson staff, which is another longstanding lesbian bar in New York, they came in for their kind of like staff retreat to Grotto, which was super fun. That's cute. I love that. It was very cute. And they were telling me about how men will leer at their guests through the window because they're dancing and they're enjoying themselves and they're just being stared at by these weirdos. And it is an unsafe environment, you know, for them. Like, And they're like, well, we can't shoo these men away from the street. So I was thinking, okay, when I create Grotto, how amazing would it be if you had to kind of check in? I love how when you go to a place like House of Yes, they read out their rules of conduct to you and they tell you this is an inclusive, safe space. We will not tolerate hate. We're not going to tolerate unwanted touching. And I want to incorporate that very much into what Grotto is. You know people aren't going to be staring at you. You know people aren't going to be acting a fool. (laughs) Yeah, act right. Don't act Act, up. Act right. Act grotto or get kicked out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd I'd love to create that safe space, hopefully in Brooklyn, not in Bushwick, probably in Fort Greene, if I can find the right space or, or somewhere nearby. I love that neighborhood. I think it feels really safe. And there's a lot of people in the community that already live there. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Obviously, we're huge manifestors on the podcast. And I know you've talked a little bit about the dream of Grotto. But are there any other people that you'd love to do pop-ups or partnerships with while you're still in that phase of, of the project? Ooh, yeah. I started a conversation earlier this year and hopefully we'll continue it with The Standard East Village. Oh, very cool. They have a bar. It's called No Bar. And it technically is queer. I think it could be more queer. And I'd like to be the one to make it that way. (laughs) Be the change. Be the change you wish to see in the East Village. Well, Alsa, we're going to do our fun Future Food is You tradition called our Future Flash Five. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling nervous. (laughs) Good. Here we go. The future of food journalism. Will live at intersections. The future of bars. Gay. The future of tourism. Qualitative. The future of queer culture. Inclusive. And the future of spirits. Me. (laughs) Amazing. Alsa, thank you so much for joining us. I have learned so much. And if we want to keep supporting you, we're the best places to find you. You can find us on Instagram at grotto.nyc. You can find my personal Instagram at Austa Clausen. And you can find us at Pebble Bar on August 27th for our next Sapphic Sounds concert. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Before we go, our guest is going to leave a voicemail at the Future of Food mailbox, just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food as You mailbox. 
Please leave your message after the beep. Hi, Future Austa. It's been 10 years that I'm sure have absolutely zipped by. It seriously feels like every year goes by quicker and quicker. You're probably running over to the newly opened third location of Grotto right now, but I hope you've also been taking the time to honor your own peace and put your self-care first. I know we always like to keep busy, which is why that inclusive boutique hotel we've been dreaming up is finally in the works, but it's just as important to give ourselves the space to breathe and think, which is why I hope we ended up buying that A-frame cabin upstate or in the Berkshires and got those cute little chickens we always talked about. I'm sure our tomato arch and herb garden are the talk of the town and that you've been flouncing around in the yard in those breezy little dresses. Hopefully you've still been traveling too. Maybe not as much for work anymore, but with your soulmate who loves an adventure just as much as you do and always allows your Sagittarian packed itinerary loving mind to run wild with ideas. We've always been an amazing manifester, so I can't wait to see what else we've been cooking up that I haven't even thought of yet. P.S. Have we mastered glass blowing? Have we been hosting any kamayans with friends at our Brooklyn Brownstone lately? Have we been featured on the cover of Cherry Bomb yet? I hope so. Anyways, gotta run. Love you. Mean it. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes or leave us a rating and a review and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Carrie Gold for sponsoring our show. The Future of Food As You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityVox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Katherine Baker, and associate producer Jenna Sadu. Catch you on the future flip. <laughs>